All right, hi guys. Um, like Shirley said, we're gonna start in John 5, verse 30, if you wanna follow along. And we're in ESV. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that he is the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a, burn he was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that he, that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The search, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not rejoice, or I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, then you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive the glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have sent your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the joy it is to uh, come together. What a, what a good thing it is to be your children, to learn together, to spur each other on. Lord, would you help us this morning? I pray that as we consider these words, your word, Lord, that you would speak to us, that we would, that we would hear your voice. You are our Father. Would you help our hearts to be soft, open, our minds to be malleable? Lord, I pray that we would um, leave here with more than just a few things to think about, but a renewed sense of hope, a deeper conviction of who you are, who you say we are, and this great work, this mission that you're on, that you've, you've included us in, in Portland and in the world. We pray in your name, amen. <clears throat> well, good morning, first of all. If we've not met before, my name is Simon. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace City in Portland, just one of several leaders here to serve you. Um, by the way, I have to, a couple things before we get right into the teaching this morning. Um, first of all, big props to my wife, Shirley, uh, who did all the announcements and stuff this morning, that sort of lead into the three minute break, that was wonderfully awkward. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> I think I'm beginning to influence my wife. <clears throat> and, uh, and secondly, uh, the State of Grace meeting. I think you, you, you communicated that very well, but I just want to emphasize again. Um, if you're like, I don't know what that is. Do I have to stay? I don't want to stay. I think the sun's shining. 
please stay. Um, in fact, we have a very, I'm telling you now so you can kind of like psychologically prepare yourself, um, but we have a very special moment planned um, just sort of on at the beginning of our State of Grace meeting, and we're just going to go right into it because uh, I don't want to be here if the sun's shining. Um, so we're not going to waste anyone's time, but it is so important uh, for our health as a church family. So that, that's my appeal. Please uh, stick around. It won't be long, and it's going to be going to be special. Regarding the word, God's word, we, uh, if, if you're kind of wondering, like, well, why, why John 5? Uh, who picked that one? We're actually back in our, our series of teachings that we started months ago through the book of John. So we've been slowly but surely working our way through the book of John, and we subtitled this series in John walking with Jesus, um, because it's a long book, and there's something wonderful about doing something that hopefully, in a way, almost forces us to slow down our rhythm. We're not just trying to get to like the next topic. We're not just trying to like get to the next principle or thing that we can kind of master or apply to our lives. Principles are good, um, practical tips and 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 life hacks are okay, but we're here to learn how to walk with Jesus. Not just acquire more information about him, but to to really experience life with him together as a community. And so in a way, I mean, even the fact that we just read like a a pretty significant chunk of scripture, you know, that's not normal, right? a large chunk of scripture, now we're gonna take our time to sort of wade into it and really just think deeply. What is Jesus saying? How can we walk with him and experience um, what one author described as the unforced rhythms of his grace? That's what we're doing. So, John chapter five, this is what we're looking at today, the last half of John chapter five. Uh, The context of the words that Hannah read to us, um, it's, it's it's a context that keeps coming up over and over again in John, the gospel according to John. Um, the context is there's a group of people who have gathered around Jesus and they're arguing about his identity. This happens over and over again and <clears throat> the controversy level only goes up and up and up as, as we go. Um, but constantly people are gathering. His own disciples will even sort of discuss amongst themselves who is Jesus really. And of course Jesus has many critics who are constantly going back and forth questioning his authority. Several times, even just at this point in the gospel, in this, this text we're reading, Jesus has already claimed certain things about himself. He's, he's beginning to talk about his relationship with God as if they're this father-son duo. And it's beginning to push some, some buttons beginning to stir up some theological controversy uh, that's really freaking people out. Eventually, he'll get crucified over it because of that and, and other things. But who is Jesus and what is the controversy? And this is the context. Um, The people that Jesus is talking to here, they don't believe that he is who he claims to be. They don't believe that he's the quote unquote son of God. Um, I'm not even sure if they quite understand what he means by that, but they don't believe him. They are seriously questioning the identity of Jesus, his authority or his relationship with God the Father. And so now Jesus is responding. He's, He's addressing their quote unquote unbelief. And he says a few things. Um, He highlights a short list of of witnesses. He says, um, he begins by saying, you didn't believe John the Baptist. Different John. So this is John, the disciple of Jesus who wrote this account. 
But then there was John the Baptist, another John, who was the forerunner, the first to identify Jesus and hear the voice of God as the Spirit descended on him and remained like a dove. And and he says, this is it. This is the guy. This is the, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And some of those who heard John did believe and many didn't, like these, these people, these critics. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you, everyone was so impressed with John and you enjoyed his light for a while, but in the end, you refused to believe even what he said about me. He, uh, he says, you don't even believe the miracles themselves. There's actually even a greater witness. In verse 36, he says, you don't believe John. You didn't believe his testimony. You don't even believe the greater testimony, which are the works that I've been doing, the miracles. He says in verse 37, um, you don't hear the Father's voice. You could say they refuse uh, to recognize the voice that John heard when Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan. This one's a bit cryptic. But he said, even the Father's voice, even the word that God himself spoke in as a witness to my identity, you refuse to believe. And then finally he says in verse 39, um, even the scriptures, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you'll find life, but you refuse to come to me recognizing that even the scriptures are actually bearing witness about me. And so it's like a short list of, of, of witnesses, four witnesses, all saying the same thing about the identity of Jesus, but they refuse to come to him, to believe. <clears throat> Why didn't they believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be? The personal testimony of like this legit spiritual legend out in the wilderness, John the Baptist. I mean, when he spoke, people listened. This dude was the real deal. They wouldn't believe. They saw miracles. How many of you have ever thought to yourself, man, if, if, if I just saw a miracle, like that would really help me believe. Like a legit miracle, not like my friend or the guy on TV who told me about the miracle, but I'm like, ah, you know, it's, I don't know. Sounds like hype. Who knows, maybe, I, I don't know. I'm talking about a legit miracle. A legit healing, someone coming back from the dead, like a supernatural demonstration of the presence of Jesus. You ever thought, man, that would be convincing. That would do it for me. You're like, no, mm -mm. Uh, Ironically, it would seem like many of Jesus' critics, they, they saw the miracles, and for some it was convincing, but for others they were like, well, we're not impressed. There's, there's different ways that you can um, enhance spiritual power and perform quote unquote miracles. Jesus wasn't the first to, uh, to quote unquote do a miracle. I mean, heck, we could go all the way back to the book of Exodus. Remember the sort of the spiritual showdown between Moses and Aaron and the sort of the, the magicians in Egypt. There's, there's a variety of ways to tap into supernatural power. It was true then, it's true today. I don't know what you think about that. And of course, the scriptures themselves. You know, and this is an easy Google, but there are 300, give or take, this is, this is what the scholars say, 300 different prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures that actually um, foretell of the coming Messiah and that Jesus fulfills all these, these different prophetic sort of foreshadowings, these details, and they're all there. Like three, the, the odds of a human actually fulfilling all of these details, these prophetic details, are like astronomically unlikely. 
It's an interesting uh, study. It's quite fascinating. Now, of course, it, whether or not that means anything to you um, would have everything to do with how you view the scriptures themselves. Is, is this an, an accurate uh, source of historical events? Was there, was there accurate records being, being taken? Um, that's a whole other thing. I would say yes. I would say absolutely yes. In, in fact, it's absolutely mind-boggling when you really consider just what this book is. It's quite amazing. But that's another story. Why, why do we struggle to believe? Let me ask that question. Because this isn't just about like the Pharisees. These, these are the, the, the critics of Jesus. It's not even just about the atheists. Why do any of us struggle to believe? Um, is believing simply some kind of predisposition that people have? You ever wonder? You ever meet someone who's just got this like, it, it seems like they, they were just born with this sort of like faith, man, they'll believe anything. Bit naive, a bit childlike, but man, they just got this faith. They just believe. And personally, I'm like, I kind of envy those people. Makes me think of my kids. Is it a predisposition? Is it a matter of being convinced? Is it a matter of getting enough evidence, amassing enough data to where now you you're, you are convinced? Maybe. Could be, could be a part of it. It didn't seem to be the case for many of Jesus' critics. Even his own disciples struggled to believe, and they had a, like a front row uh, seat. They, they saw firsthand Jesus do things that were arguably unexplainable. Talk about like irrefutable evidence. But even, even then, it seemed like ah, that didn't seem to be like the thing that would convince people to believe? Is it a matter of being convinced? Why is it so hard to believe? Now here's the question. Um, how can we learn to believe more fully? Towards the end of John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, uh, John tells us explicitly that the whole reason he's writing all of these things, all of the teachings, all of the words of Jesus, the miracles, all this stuff is so that we too might believe. He wants us to believe. Um, his agenda is right, it's right out there. He's like, I'm trying to convince you, I desperately want you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, who died on the Roman cross, who came back from the dead, who's now seated on his throne in heaven, who will come again to make all things new. And I want you to believe it. I want you to believe it. I'm trying to convince you. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to believe? And how can we learn? to believe more fully. Well, first of all, I think it's true that we all do start from different places. I think some of us are actually born with a predisposition to believe. Or maybe we're not born with it, maybe it's not congenital, but something happens early on in life that forms our, our personality and we're a bit more, believing maybe comes a bit more naturally. I'll give you some examples. A few examples of different people who interacted with Jesus and either believed or didn't believe or believed to varying degrees in different ways. For example, um, in John chapter one, going back to the beginning, we're introduced to one of his first disciples named Nathaniel. And we're told that Jesus saw this Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. <coughs> Nathaniel, <coughs> excuse me, so emotional. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. All right. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? Nathanael's my boy. I'm like, what about that was so convincing 
Nathaniel, before I called you, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Now, I think there's, there's Jesus saying a whole lot there. There's, as usual, there's, he's, he's being cryptic and he's using this metaphor about the fig tree. But come on. Like, this is like the simplest thing. And all of a sudden, like, I believe. I believe. Nathaniel's my boy. But some people genuinely struggle more than others. For example, Thomas. Uh, in John chapter 11, is where we meet Thomas called the twin. Apparently, he had a twin. Um, in John chapter 11, Jesus gets news that one of his best friends named Lazarus has died. Um, and he's back in Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, uh, where he's just been confronted by some of the religious leaders who are now conspiring to murder him. And uh, Jesus tells his disciples, well, we gotta go back. We, we've, got, we've gotta go um, and wake up Lazarus. Of course, he's not talking about, like, he's talking about death. We're gonna go and we're, I'm gonna bring Lazarus back to life. Thomas, he says this to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Classic Thomas. Jesus is like, look, we're going to go. Guys, this is, this is going to be great. Trust me. I'm actually glad this happened because now you get an opportunity to see the glory of my father. So let's, let's go. And Thomas was like, I don't. Yeah, okay, let's go. We'll, we'll die as well. <laughs> like, okay, all right. <clears throat> John 20, 25, Jesus has died himself. He's come back from the dead. As he explicitly predicted multiple times, several of his disciples have now had up-close encounters with post-resurrection Jesus. He's come back, and now the report's getting out. Jesus is alive. You know how he said he was going to come back from the dead? That wasn't a metaphor. Like, he's really back, and we've seen him. But apparently Thomas, Thomas missed it. He missed the meeting where Jesus made the appearance, but they're trying to convince him, Thomas, he's alive. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails um, and into his side where he was pierced, I will never believe. I don't care what anyone says. I, I can't. I refuse. I won't believe. That's Thomas. That's a different um, temperament. Clearly, I reckon he saw everything that Nathaniel saw, but he is struggling to believe. And I think many of us love Thomas because we're like, that, yeah, that's, I get that. I get that. Um, one of my favorite examples of someone wrestling, trying to believe is the, uh, the soldier in the gospel according to Mark, another one of the, the gospel accounts. There's a soldier who comes to Jesus and he has a son who's, um, who's suffering. And he finds Jesus because he's heard the stories. This is the one who has the power to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to set people free. And so he finds Jesus and he says, Jesus, can you do this? And Jesus says, can I? Nothing's impossible for him who believes. And the man cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe. I'm trying to believe. I want to believe. But it is really hard to believe. Lord Jesus, help, help. And I love Jesus' response. He doesn't take a step back and be like, well, I don't know. Do you believe or not? Because I don't want to waste my time. No, he's, apparently it's good enough. He sees the man's heart. And he realizes, like, I get it. I get it. You're struggling to believe. Take me to your son. Help my unbelief. And then, of course, this is the last example. This is the example that, that we take straight from our text this morning. Some people simply refuse to believe. They refuse to come to me that you may have life. They've heard the testimony. They've seen the miracles. If they had hearts that were open, they may have even heard the voice of the Father. Even as they diligently searched the scriptures, it was like they refused to acknowledge this is the Messiah, 
and he refused to come to him. And that could be quite challenging, because sometimes I think we like to, um, forgive me, I don't mean to sound harsh, but sometimes we can convince ourselves, like, I'd love to believe, I want to believe, help my unbelief. But actually, deep down, I refuse to believe. I refuse to believe because I don't like the implications. I have a feeling that if I were to really believe, it it might have ramifications. I might have to like change something about my life. I might have to live differently. I might have to submit my life to an authority outside of myself. Forget that. Nothing's convincing me. I mean, I'd, I'd love to believe, but what can I tell you? That's called refusing to believe. Now, I can't see a person's heart, so I don't, I wouldn't presume to judge anyone, but I know my heart. <clears throat> so we all start from a different place. And I think that's important to acknowledge. It's okay wherever you're coming from. Maybe you, uh, you grew up in a home where your parents are Christians. Shirley and I are Christians. We talk about Jesus a lot. We pray with our kids. My, my kids just sort of like, they, they believe in Jesus because it's just, it's the most natural thing. That's, that's pretty cool for them. Now, I also grew up in a home where my parents talked a lot about Jesus. And I believed in Jesus. And then when I was around 14, 15, for sure by the time I was 16, I'm like, I'm done. I don't, I don't know what that was, but I'm, I'm, I'm believing other things now. And I guess you could say I stopped believing. I don't think Jesus ever stopped pursuing me, but I, I, I chose to believe other things that aligned more with the kind of life that I was wanting to live in my late teens and 20s. Maybe you can identify. Maybe you, were, you grew up in a home where there was none of that. In fact, maybe your parents were like anti-religion, anti-Jesus, anti-church, and here you are, oh, the irony. Here you are, loving Jesus, believing in Jesus, and you're thinking, how on earth did this happen? How did this happen? How did I come to believe? And we all start from different places. And that's okay. That's very, I would encourage you, wherever you're starting from, don't think that somehow like your starting point is so much more difficult than anyone else. It's, it's almost hilarious how Jesus likes to meet us in these impossible places. And be like, yep, you don't believe? We'll see about that. I mean, the Apostle Paul who wrote a large portion of the New Testament, and we'll, we'll quote from him a few times this morning, um, he refused to believe, utterly refused to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And Jesus was like, meh, that's just fine. You're coming with me. He, he violently pursued this man. He knocked him on the ground, blinded him. He said, no, you're coming with me. You're coming with me. Suppose Paul could have continued to refuse, and I don't know, I don't know how that would have worked out for him, but Jesus was relentless. He's like, nope, you're mine. You're coming with me. Jesus is really good at meeting us in our unique places, our unique backgrounds. Oh, he's so, he's so good. Now, here's the, here's the, the real question. We want to grow in believing I'm not talking about like from becoming and like stop being an atheist, although that's a thing. Some of you started there. But even just like here, you know, we're at church. We're at church, we're listening to God's word, and the question is how do we grow in, in believing? How do we grow? How do we mature? How do we what what would it look like to say, Jesus, help me? I want to trust you more. I want to believe that you are who you say you are and believe you not just as some kind of a mental ascension, but I want to believe you in a way that I'm able to like lean heavily on your faithfulness, trust you in ways that 
potentially, occasionally, even transcend sort of common sense or mere logic. I mean, Jesus will ask us to trust him in some incredibly, wonderfully uncomfortable ways. And he wants us to grow in how we believe him, that we would believe him with like the most precious aspects of our being, like the scary bits, the vulnerable parts. Will you believe me? Do you believe me? How do we grow in believing? Um, a couple things. Number one, uh, I don't believe that it's merely a matter of evidence. When I was 22, 23, before Jesus decided it was my time to come with him, um, I gave my life to Jesus while I was a student on the campus. And uh, I remember meeting Christians, different people, different religious people along the way, and occasionally someone would try to uh, convince me. Uh, have you ever been proselytized? <laughs> Don't you love it? Isn't that, isn't that just a, such a wonderful word? It's almost as bad as evangelism. Whew, gosh. I'm just kidding. Those are wonderful things, but usually Christians get really uneasy when you start talking about evangelism. Um, what a gift evangelism is. But I met a couple guys on my campus who gave me a book an old, old book by Josh McDowell called More Than a Carpenter. It's a classic. It's basically like a, a, a contemporary or was a contemporary take on C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. He sort of looks at these, these different possibilities in terms of like, well, who was Jesus really? Who could have he been? And he presents a very simple, logical argument for, well, he, Jesus could be a, a, a liar, he could be a lunatic, uh, or he could be exactly who he claimed to be. And he kind of explores those different options and, and why one really makes no sense and the other one's, now that doesn't really work either, but what if in fact Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be? And I remember reading this book and feeling like a little taken back, like, oh my goodness, like I had kind of written off the whole thing. I just sort of like chalked it up to, well, that was my childhood experience. You know, some people are into that, but it's all a bit of a myth anyway, so who really knows? And then when presented with just a little bit of evidence, I was like, hmm, there's something to this. If, even if you just think about the resurrection event, this, this, if I can put it this way, this alleged event in history, and you consider the evidence, the weight of eyewitness testimony, the judicial evidence that's been presented, it's, it's rather compelling, actually, if you're willing to, to think about it, to consider the evidence seriously. But guess what? Even after reading Josh McDowell, I didn't become a Christian. In retrospect, I think I really refused to believe. I knew the implications. I knew the implications. I thought I knew the implications. Let me put it that way. And I refused to believe. There's many examples of this phenomenon. Um, I don't know why I thought of this recently, but occasionally meet someone who's a Holocaust denier or Holocaust revisionist. Now, if you are that person, I'm so sorry for you. Like you are, I don't, I don't want to get controversial, but you, you need to figure that out. Like, um, it's a real event in history. Okay, I've, I've been to Auschwitz. I've been to the, the Holocaust Museum and multiple places in Jerusalem. And I'm like, the evidence is overwhelming. Many people, many uh, proper historians would truly just consider it fact. And yet there's still many people, like smart, intelligent, thinking people who are like, no, I don't, I don't believe it. It was just something made up for, for a political purpose or something like that. We can do that with evidence all day long. Truly, it's not the issue. Now I'm kind of speaking to like if, if you're not a believer in the room. 
and I don't, I don't wanna, I'm not gonna call you out, I'm not gonna have you raise your hand or anything, but I always kind of hope on a Sunday as we gather as a church family, this would be the kind of place where you could like come or bring your friend if you're not a Christian. And you're like, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know. I don't even know if God is real. Okay, I'm glad you're here, I'm glad you're here. And I know the feeling that like, well, you know what, if I just had more evidence, then maybe I would take this whole Jesus thing seriously. If somehow someone could like actually present some sort of a logical compelling argument with enough data, then I would believe. And I want to call you out. I want to call you out. And I say, I don't, I don't, I don't think you're right. I, I don't think you're right. I don't think any amount, I don't think the, the biggest mountain of evidence in the world can truly convince a person to believe. I don't think that for so many reasons. One, my personal experience, but also just human psychology. We, we like to think of ourselves as these, like, this, these total rational beings that are constantly evaluating the data and making these logical decisions. It's just not how we work. It's not how we work. Now, of course, you can go to extremes, and I'm not suggesting that okay, evidence doesn't matter. I'm so grateful that someone put Josh McDowell into my hands. In fact, I think that was like a, a crucial part of my journey. But at the end of the day, when I finally came to believe in Jesus, there was something else going on. <clears throat> Believing is truly a matter of the heart. Jesus says in verse 40, you refuse to come to me. You refuse to come to me to have life. And then he says this, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Jesus said, I'm, I'm really not super interested and all of the expert opinion swirling about. I'm not concerned. But I know you, and I know that you do not have the love of the Father in your hearts. Hmm. Jesus understood that the real issue was a matter of love. The love of God entering in to a human heart. Verse 44, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only, only God? If you were last week, we talked about the glory of God. And I referenced Exodus chapter 33. Let me, let me summarize it again this week. Moses is having this encounter with God. And he says to God, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God responds by passing before him. In Exodus 34, it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The emphasis being... This God, his glory, is understood as this unfathomable to the thousandth, thousandth generation steadfast love. But if you won't believe Moses, then how will you believe me today? This is where Jesus ends. But if you didn't believe Moses, if you didn't believe the testimony of God himself, when Moses had that moment with him, then you're not gonna believe me because the issue isn't, have you seen enough miracles? Have you heard enough convincing eyewitness testimonies? Have you amassed enough data? Is it logical enough yet? The real issue is, 
Has the love of God penetrated your heart? Because nothing else is going to convince you until you begin to experience the love of God that breaks a human heart, that penetrates into the hard, dark places of your soul and mine. This is, this is the great apologetic of God. He convinces us by loving us. The greatest question of the human heart, I would argue, is this. Does God really love me? Am I really loved? And will he really love me for a thousand generations to come? Or will he stop loving me when I no longer deserve it? In the Exodus 34 account, only just weeks will go by and God's people will begin to question his steadfast love and faithfulness. He's rescued them out of slavery Now I'm talking to the Christian. He's rescued you out of slavery. He's given you manna to eat in the desert. He's done all of these things to prove to you that he is exactly who he's claimed to be. And only weeks go by, I don't even know if God's real anymore. I just, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust him. And of course we never say that out loud, we simply live it out. Because when we don't believe that God is as loving and as faithful as he says he is, our life, the fruit of our lives, demonstrate it. I don't believe God loves me. I really don't. I don't believe he's as faithful as he says he is, so I cannot trust his word. I'd rather take the advice of the expert, the cultural gurus, you know, all of the different people who have an opinion on who Jesus really is and, and what the Bible actually says. You know what I'm talking about? Like, and if you want to know how you're believing lately, then we evaluate our lives. Man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I truly trust God. Shirley and I, we've just gone through a really, she, she invited people to pray with her. Uh, you know why she started getting up at 530 every morning to come pray at the church building? Um, Because my wife believes that Jesus is as faithful as as he claims to be. And because we were really struggling in our marriage, and we were like, and, and if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. This is like nothing special to us, right? But we were having like a season. We're like, man, we're really struggling in our marriage. And like, this is really hard. And you know how I know my wife believes in Jesus? Because she gets up at 5.30 every morning and gets on her knees and cries out to God, the only being in the universe who's faithful and powerful enough to heal what we can't. That's how I know my wife believes in Jesus. And you know how I know when I'm struggling to believe Jesus? Is when I don't do stuff like that. And that's not a shame thing. Some of you are thinking like, well, I don't don't do that. Nor do I. Yeah, nor did she. But here's my point, here's my point, not to like shame anyone into praying more. It's more of like, hey, this this is what God, he invites us into these like gut check moments says, okay, like, do you really trust me? Do you really believe that I love you and won't stop? Do you? I want you to. Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, help me. And so that um, leads us with the question. So let's say we do do that little gut check thing. And we kind of have a moment of honesty and we think, man, do I really believe? Do I believe? Do I live like it? Do I have that sort of deep security in my soul to where I know nothing in heaven or on earth can separate me from the love of my Father because of Jesus, because of what he has done for me? Do I have that anchor in my soul? And maybe you're like, ah, gosh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm constantly trying to like control a lot of different aspects of my life. Could that be a sign that maybe I don't really believe 
that God is as good and as faithful as he claims to be? Maybe, maybe. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? I would say um, that prayer in Mark chapter nine, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, that's a prayer. Help, Lord, help, Lord, help. That's a great place to start every single morning. Lord, help. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.15, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the hearts of the hearers. That sounds like a spiritual thing. Maybe an emotional thing. Whenever those words are read, this is who God is. It's like there's this veil that covers the heart of uh, certain people. All of us, maybe, to some degree. God tears down the veil. We're like, man, who took the veil down? Put this veil back up. Who keeps tearing the sneaking curtains down? God keeps tearing down the veil. Lord, help my unbelief. Um, in that Second Corinthians chapter three section of the letter, Paul then goes on to spend about five chapters uh, expounding on like, so what do you do with that? And he says, uh, don't lose heart, suffer with hope, and let your light shine before the world. You know what he does? He actually, he addresses the fact that unbelief is real, it's a real problem, and then he begins to encourage the people of God, be conduits of God's love in a dark world around you. Let your light shine before men that they may glorify your God in heaven. Okay, so here, here's the challenge to us as a church. Can I invite the worship team to come back up, please? Here, here's, here's the good challenge for us as a church. Some of you guys are gonna love this, and some of you are like, ah, hmm, that's hard. Here's the challenge. As a church, we're all struggling to believe in various ways. We're all starting from different places, and Jesus is calling us on this journey to walk with him and to learn how to believe him in new ways, more profound ways, more life-giving ways. We're all on this journey together. Some of us are Nathaniels. We're like, dude, I'm, I'm in. You're, I'm in, I'm in. Some of us are Thomases. Okay, but we're all in this together. Some of us need to see the love of God put on display in God's family. Like, I need to see it. Because I've already considered all of the evidence. I've already heard all of the arguments. Dang it, I've read Josh McDowell, even like the really thick one, the evidence that demands a verdict. Read it all, heard it all, thought about it all. But there's something in my heart it's like keeping me from believing. I refuse to believe. It's usually something to do with hypocrisy in the church or some deep, deep pain, betrayal, someone who should have loved like Jesus, but instead they lied. And there's an emotional wound, a deep, deep hurt. As the family of God, we get to come together and be like, right, let's, let's reenact the love of God in Christ. Let's put it on display. Let's shine together. And some people in the room will kind of squirm and be like, oh, like I, don't, I wish I could believe like that. Well, it's okay if you don't, because you're not alone. We're gonna figure this out together. You know, when I got here this morning, I walked in, the very first thing that I saw was a young man sitting in our basement with another one of the brothers. They were sitting together, and this young man was shaking and bawling uncontrollably. It, it was really quite like, oh, okay, I, I wasn't expecting that. Like, I was running slightly late, and I was trying to come up here, and next thing I know, there's a young man who's just like, he's, he's melting down. He's having a proper panic attack. It may have even been a demonic or a mixture of, of, of something. And it reminded me in that moment, oh, goodness, this is why we're here. This is what we're doing. This is what we're building. We're becoming the family of God that can display his love and faithfulness for the broken people around us. Jesus described us as his body. And so when someone shows up in our lives, 
when someone shows up on a Sunday morning and they're like, man, I've heard every argument you've got and it's done nothing for me. Okay, family, we're up. God, help us. Help us to be like conduits of your love and your grace, your steadfast love and faithfulness in this very, very dark and broken world that God has called us to. Grace City, wasn't my idea. Wasn't my idea. And here we are. Here we are. Can we stand together, please? how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for not just talking about your love, but actually embodying your steadfast love, your mercy, your thousandth generation love by laying down your life for us thank you for your grace thank you for forgiving us Lord would you help us to to live as if your love is just as real today as it ever was that we wouldn't forget or when we do Lord when we begin to doubt when we struggle to believe Lord would you help our unbelief would you help us And Lord, would you help us to lay down our lives as a demonstration of of who you are? That people wouldn't just hear more arguments, more sermons, more data, but they would actually get to feel the love of God working out in relationships in our, our church family. Lord, would you help us in that way? Would you help us to forgive one another, to bear with one another, to speak truth to one another, to cry with one another, to celebrate together, to check up on each other when it's been too long, or to share meals together, to drop off groceries when we hear about a sickness, or to send a card with a voucher when someone has a baby, or to be your people, your hands and feet, your family that, that manifests the sweet aroma of the knowledge of who you are in every place. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to end with a song of worship.